Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. Whatever was left over of that jet lag from last week, I woke up this morning, read the news, and for whatever reason, it was completely gone. Yes, Facebook fury always wakes you up, huh? Something. I, I don't know about <laughs> fury, but something on the internet sure woke me up, yes. Yes, this is going to be another one of those episodes where we are recording before I have written, but you will probably read what I wrote before you hear this. So uh, apologies in advance for any discrepancies, but hopefully this will help. Hopefully this will, we can help figure out what my take is going to be here by getting your take first. And we always know when it comes to Facebook that you have takes. That I might do, yes. <laughs> so the context here is uh, Mark Zuckerberg released a post today entitled A Privacy-Focused Vision for Social Networking. Were you standing up and applauding as you read this title? I had raised eyebrows. I was very curious what he might have to say. I like the title, though. So we can get more into the reactions of this post, yours and others, but I think it's worth sort of going over. I'm going to just kind of just run through it real quick from the top and just sort of give context to this conversation, although we'll definitely put a link in the show notes. I presume most people will have heard about it. But the opening was sort of a broader context of the way that Mark Zuckerberg believes that social networking has changed. And it's one that I think I broadly agree with, this idea that sort of Facebook and then later Instagram were more about sort of town squares. It was the analogy that he use this idea that you are more broadcasting things that are going on. And obviously, Facebook kind of was shifted to being more of that model kind of by brute force, where the newsfeed made things more accessible than sort of users expected. And there was a lot of pushback on that. Facebook changed lots of things from being private, being public, which is why they have an FTC consent order for having done that without sort of users permission. Facebook made this shift a while ago to make things more public. And at the time, interestingly enough, sort of in contrast to this, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said that the social norm has existed where people have gotten more and more comfortable with sharing information and and more and more openly. And you know, I think certainly that that is perhaps that might not have been completely accurate or maybe it was accurate and things have shifted since then. But the idea being that there's still lots of conversation, though, that he phrases as being in the living room conversation, conversations that are not meant for sort of public consumption, are not meant to be broadcast, but are sort of between people and that more and more of sort of the energy and social networks is moving in that direction. And I mean, that's clearly the case. I think the analogy that I created was phones and phone books, where the idea was one is sort of advertising and putting information out there and having a list of everything that you do and where to reach people and having a presence on the internet. And Facebook's sort of real name policy is certainly a part of this. And the other one is a telephone conversation where it's between you and I. Ideally, people can't hear it unless they're purposely recording it like we are this one. It's less sort of permanent and less sort of queer to the outside world. But in some respects, it's a much sort of higher usage and more important activity on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. And if you think about it, just leaving aside the social networking context, if you think about it, sort of one-on-one -on -one conversations make up a lot more of our conversation generally than our sort of broadcasting conversations. Yeah. And they're super important, right? Like, I think the distinction that he's drawing is right. And the extent to which people feel Authentic. Oh, let me start at the other extreme. The extent to which one of the criticisms of social media platforms is it's this version of projected self. It's what you want the world to see. And then on the other side of this, the one-on-one -on -one interactions, the smaller, the living room type interactions, the guard is down because it's going to a much smaller audience. It's more authentic. You can be much less guarded. Both have their place, but I personally at least think that the one-on-one, -on -one, the very small scale interactions like there's a high correlation between that and like feeling like you're connected and happy on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, it actually reminds me of one of my favorite drawings way back in the day was I created something. This is my first year of Shotekri. I created something called the social communications map. The general thesis is that humans are social animals. Like we live on communication. That's what matters most to us. But there's all different types of communication. The two axes that I used in the social communications map was permanent and ephemeral. And the other axes was sort of symmetric, where it's sort of one-to-one conversation or one-to-one relationships, and then asymmetric which is one to many. So more of a sort of a broadcasting sort of relationship. And then within that, I also made a further distinction, which was things that were public versus things that were private. So in this map at the time, this is 2013. And the context of me creating this map was Facebook seeking to acquire Snapchat. At the time, I had Facebook very firmly in sort of the permanent symmetric and public sort of part of the map. The idea is with Facebook, it's symmetric because the people you are connected to on Facebook, it's a one-to-one relationship, right? Yes, there are parts of Facebook, and I, I can't remember to what extent they were available then. Like like I said, Facebook has moved to be more public over the years where you could have a page and you could broadcast and have sort of a public figure sort of thing. But by and large, for most people, their general experience on Facebook was the people who saw their posts on Facebook were their friends, and the posts that they saw were of their friends. And also it had this sort of permanent, and, and the permanence isn't just a technical detail. Detail, and I'll explain the difference in, in a moment. It's also sort of the way people experience the product detail, especially at that time. There was a lot of sort of like scare stories about people losing their jobs or being denied admission to college or whatever it might be because of some social media post from several years previously. And there was a lot of warning, be careful what you post. And there was a sense that what was on Facebook was permanent. And then obviously it was public. And by public, I don't mean it was available to anyone, but everyone that you were sort of connected with could see it. And Facebook was very sort of permanently in that position. And just to give some other examples of this. For example, I put like blogs, for example, in the permanent public and asymmetric part of the map in that you write a blog and the idea is anyone can come and read it. And it's a one-to-many transmission. Like people can read it that you don't actually have a direct connection with. It's permanent. It's out there on the web. And obviously, you know, it's public. As another example, I had Twitter in the asymmetric, one-to-many, more ephemeral side of things. And the reason why I Twitter ephemeral, obviously tweets can be saved. And I think even since then, the idea of people digging up old tweets and get people in trouble has certainly become a real thing. But particularly, again, this is 2013. At that time, the sense of Twitter is that you just dash out tweets and they kind of hang out there. That's why those tweets came back in 2018, 2018 to hurt you because you wrote them with the context. The way you experienced the product was being more ephemeral. And Instagram was very much like Twitter. Instagram and Twitter, I think, are very, very similar products in many respects, at least the feed perspective. The big difference is obviously Instagram is photos and Twitter is text. And photos are generally just transmit better. They're more sort of appealing to more people, whereas people who are really sort of tech-centric like really love Twitter, but I think that's a more sort of limited segment of the population. Anyhow, I'm sort of rambling here, but where I had Snapchat in this was symmetric, one-to-one, ephemeral, but also private. The thing that people forget about Snapchat is all the olds, where I include people like you and I, they saw Snapchat when it was coming along in this time period, and people sort of fixated on the stories aspect, which quite clearly stories is a super important sort of idea and product, as we've seen in the context of Facebook and Instagram and things along those lines. But the core of Snapchat, the reason why people use Snapchat, all the sort of engagement was really around chat. It was around sort of one-to-one communication between you and your friends in, in your social circle. And the expectation and the way that people experienced that product was as a one-to-one ephemeral, this isn't going to be held against me, but private. I'm not showing this off to everyone. It's just between you and I. And that was a very, very powerful sort of set of characteristics to drive extreme deep engagement, much deeper than the sort of engagement that Facebook was getting on any of its products. 
Yeah, as someone who grew up using text messages, SMSs, I remember using it the first time and my realization was, wait, so this is just like text, except I have no record. This feels terrible. And then you use it a little bit more and you realize like, oh, I am coming at it with too much of a engineering-y, more is better type approach. And actually there are times when like having it just wipe is kind of cool and it forces engagement and it's much more ephemeral. And you begin to realize that once I, look past the, oh, it's just like text, but worse. That's exactly right. I think your point about looking at it from a technical perspective is a place where it's very easy to sort of get tripped over in this analysis, because technically speaking, everything can be kept permanently and everything can be whatever sort of things you want to put around it. But the way that it's actually experienced by people is kind of more important when it comes to sort of analyzing the market. And again, I would put two examples in here. One is the fact that, you know, you can see how Twitter's, the expectations have changed where it thought to be ephemeral and now people realize it was more permanent than they thought it would be. But also Facebook was thought to be more private and it clearly pushed into being more public. And parts of that were just the natural evolution of the product, particularly in response to the news feed. People's data was public. It had always been public. What the newsfeed did was made it much more accessible and easy to get to. And that's a perfect example. Like technically speaking, nothing was different about the newsfeed, but it very much changed people's expectations of the product and changed what they posted and what they thought about putting out there. And then again, Facebook also did this by brute force, as I mentioned, by actually changing you know what was publicly available and private available. And that was obviously deeply stupid. And I'm sure they regret it greatly just because it's a big problem for them generally. But the point is, is that it's not the technical things that matter. It's people's expectations that matter. And those can shift over time. Yeah. I mean, switching from a pool model where, oh, I wonder what's up with Ben. And then I go to Ben's page and I see all his updates to a push model where Facebook's making determinations around what can it show you around friends. That is a very different user experience in terms of like shifting from one to the other. That's right. And so here's an interesting way then to, I think, to think about this. Let's go back to sort of the changes that are being put forward here. So one big thing is Zuckerberg puts this sort of private communications desire. He kind of mentions three things. So one is one-to-one chat, one is stories, and the other one is sort of small groups. And it's interesting because there's a few sort of places where this post sort of shifts where it's going. And a lot of this post is about sort of the private one-to-one communication and encryption and things along those lines. But this broader point about how social networking has changed is not necessarily about encryption. It's this broader point that people's desire has moved more towards the, basically where Snapchat was. Snapchat really had a very fundamental insight in social networking is that when you make this sense of a communications channel to be more ephemeral and more private, people will express themselves more. They'll engage more deeply because they will feel safer and there's less of the sort of the other downsides. Yeah, I truly believe that. Like just thinking about my reaction to how I would use it based on what we're talking about and reading it, it's like this is giving you permission to be more authentic. Like this projected self thing, I think once I became aware of it, and it was interesting. The other thing that's somewhat relevant is There was this interview this week with Chamath. I can never pronounce the guy's last name. The gentleman who founded Social Capital with Kara Swisher talking about some of the issues, A, around mental health and some of what social networks have unleashed. But I found the interview fascinating and either go read or listen to it. It's well worth your time. But I just think that they're actually onto something here. This notion of actually reducing the size of the groups, going back to this earlier point, it's much less of that projected self where 
where you're on show and it's not an authentic version of you and you have to pretend like everything's okay or at least there's pressure to pretend like everything's okay and then when you log on and you see everybody's doing fantastic what am I doing with my life like I don't feel like that is a fantastic thing to keep being presented when you log into a social media app versus this much smaller sharing. It's giving you permission to be more of your real self for the same reason. Like when you say things one-to-one, you're much less guarded. You're much less worried about what other people think. It gives you an ability to be more authentic and both expressing that, but also receiving that. I feel like that's a good shift. I agree. And again, I think it's really hard to sort of divorce this shift and this broader sort of commentary on how social networking is changing without going back to Snapchat again, because again, this is where Snapchat was and Snapchat was there. And what's so interesting, if you put this sort of general shift, and again, I'll go back and let's do some of the details of the shifts. So we can get through it. But I think that this broader context is enough to sort of discuss, you know, Facebook's beyond trying to build a Snapchat by Snapchat and then build a Snapchat clone, like the real first sort of effective response to Snapchat, the one that really sort of landed a blow was copying stories. And again, remember, this was Snapchat's second feature. It was the feature that was going to take Snapchat from its core sort of teenage base of people that really were drawn to these sort of features of private sense of conversation and ephemeral conversations and not feeling weighed down by sort of the history of conversation, as it were. But that was the core. But then Snapchat, the extension, the real growth prospects, and frankly, the real advertising prospects for Snap were the stories. It was more of a broadcast sort of media, more sort of pushing things out there. And then it went itself to advertising much better. And what Facebook attacked first very effectively was stories directly, with Instagram stories in particular. And obviously, they pushed stories to sort of all their products. And what I wrote at the time, I wrote in 2016, the audacity of copying well. And my point in that was one of the reasons I thought it would be very effective was that Facebook was actually not attacking Snap chat's core business. They were not attacking the core of Snapchat usage. What they were doing was sort of building a fence around Snapchat. They were limiting Snapchat's sort of future growth because the way that Snapchat is going to break out of just sort of their core base, which is super powerful and super highly engaged, but sort of fundamentally limited. I mean, like you and I were old fogies. We're not going to sit around keeping up our streaks of like responding to each other with like silly messages and whatnot. The way they were going to break out was through the stories product. And that's one where Facebook could take that product product, attach it to their network, the network that you and I are already on, already existing in, already have all the people we care about. And oh, by the way, they're going to execute it better than Snapchat did from a sort of pure technical perspective. And what that's going to do is it's going to remove the need for people like you and I to even try Snapchat. I mean, obviously, you know, it's our job. So we were on Snapchat, but by and large, you know, the general population that Snapchat needed to grow and to sort of break out from their core, we're just going to provide that on Instagram instead. And obviously it was tremendously effective. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you have an audience and you've got all your friends on Instagram and this feature that's a killer feature comes along, why would you not use it where your audience already is if the reason you would switch is for the feature? Because then you have to recreate the network on a new platform and that's a complete pain. So that article is incredibly prescient and completely nailed it. 
Well, thank you. But what I think is interesting about this conversation is this is kind of now moving into Snapchat's core, that core insight that Snapchat had. And at this point, frankly, I don't know that Facebook is particularly concerned about Snapchat. I think they took care of that rather frighteningly efficiently. But that doesn't change the fact that Snapchat had a very real and fundamental insight about the nature of communication and what people do want. And now this is Facebook, I think, much more explicitly and purposefully moving into that space. And again, Facebook just has so many negative connotations in people's mind and think that's a bad thing. You know, there is an aspect here where this is a consumer need. This is a clearly articulated, demonstrated by the market thing that people want. And it's not unsurprising that a company like Facebook would seek to serve that need. Yeah, I think it makes total sense. Putting aside the encryption thing, which I think we'll come to, I think it's a good thing. I think it's interesting, though, that you talked about Snap's products and the story aspect lending itself much better to advertising and this core messaging aspect not lending itself to advertising because it's more one-on-one type communication. I think it's very interesting that they're heading in that direction. And I think if we go back to the question you asked me right at the start about what I thought about the title of Zuckerberg's post, I mean, it raised my eyebrows. I guess once I started reading it, though, one of my frustrations with the article was that when I think back to when I got on that soapbox and started ranting and was complaining about Facebook, yeah, there was some aspect of this projected versus real self and whether it does good for people or not. But then as I read through the post, for the most part, what I really felt like he was talking about, it felt like messaging as opposed to social networking. The title of the article is a privacy-focused vision for social networking. And then what it ended up reading like was a privacy-focused vision for messaging on Facebook's platform. And in the context of what you just said, that the second part of Snapchat's product that they're going after, and they're probably not doing it to go after Snap, just like you said, but it feels like a lot of this is really focused on messaging rather than social networking. Well, why isn't that messaging social networking? Uh, I mean, it's a good point. The two blur into each other. Maybe in my mind, I think of social networking as more of that blast. Well, I think that's why the map that I drew, I think, is useful because to me, there's two parts of a social network. One is the network and two is the social. I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to get so smart. Uh, what's you the one I'm looking me, yeah. <laughs> It just kind of occurred to me as I was saying that, that, that it's kind of in the words. But if you think about it, if we say that social is communications, and I call that map the social communications map, I'm going to post it and I've actually altered that map a few times over the years. So when I link to that, don't send me email about how things are in wrong places or whatever. But it is what it is. But this idea of social is communication. And again, communication can be broadcast communication. But I think to limit it to just broadcast doesn't make sense. I mean, I think one-to-one communications is as well, because what is it tied into? It's tied into the second piece, which is the networking aspect, which is the fact that all these messaging that Facebook is proposing and talking about and building the service, it entails you actually being on the service in the first place. Although we'll get to the, maybe we'll mention the SMS bit in a little bit. But this idea of there being a network and a network effect and the fact that that's where a big part of the moat and by moat, it's both a competitive moat, but also it's a moat because consumers like it. The number one feature of any social network, and that absolutely includes messaging apps, is whether or not your friends or family are on it. To my mind, messaging, I actually think his framing is absolutely right on here. I think 
think that messaging is social networking. His broader point is that messaging is more and more important relative to broadcast social networking, which, I mean, not to toot my own horn, is something that I, from the very first sort of month of Strategy, I've been writing about that messaging is this huge deal. And, you know, I think from that perspective, I think the title is fair because a privacy focused vision for social networking is one in which messaging is more important than broadcasting. Yeah. Again, I would not disagree with a single thing that you said. I guess the only thing I would do is if in so much as this is a response to people complaining about Facebook and its approach to privacy, I don't think people have been saying, oh gosh, Facebook, I wish the messaging features that you had had more privacy. Yeah, right. Let's let's list what he's talking about here, because I think you're exactly right. And then we can sort of dive into that. So the idea is he has several principles. So I'll just kind of run through the principles quickly, and then we can sort of, I think, expound on your point. So private interactions, the idea that people can have places where they can have control over who they communicate with. This is the idea of moving from a place where sort of broadcast is the default to a place where you get to define your audience is the default. Number two is encryption. The idea that everything is end-to-end encrypted. And end-to-end encryption means that it's also encrypted from Facebook. So Whereas obviously what you post on Facebook is publicly available and technically it has to be like you can't have end to end encryption on a broadcast platform like that doesn't make sense. Right. And so uh, encryption is another one. Reducing permanence. This is the ephemerality. 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 I'm going to kill myself. Uh, don't do obviously. that. Sorry. Uh, that was, I meant I'm going to, I don't know. I'm going to do something that that's going to drive myself I, crazy. Yeah, I keep you're making me feel needed. <laughs> So reducing permanence, safety. So safety is interesting because this is very much intention with encryption, which we can get to in a moment. Interoperability. Here's one where we can definitely pick apart, but this is clearly intra-Facebook interoperability, which is that you can use Facebook messaging services together, but obviously it's not interoperability with non-Facebook services. And then secure data storage, which is we will keep our data in countries that are not totalitarian countries, which is not really relevant to the on here beyond the fact that it's sort of a free shot at Apple, which we can also get to during this. But I think your point is right, is that all this stuff is primarily about messaging and it's not really about the broadcast part of the social network. Yeah. Like, let's give them credit where credit is due. This is good stuff. Encrypting people's messages end to end is good stuff. Not storing sensitive data in countries with weak records on human rights. A lot of this is good stuff. So credit where credit is due, a little bit frustrating the extent to which people have bitten down on the narrative. Oh, Facebook is really changing when it almost feels like there's a little bit of misdirection going on. Yes, these are good things. But if you take a look at the privacy complaints that people have had, I would include myself around Facebook. This doesn't really speak to it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's kind of two reactions to this announcement. And I think they're both wrong and they're kind of wrong in the opposite directions. So one is where there's not taking Zuckerberg seriously and basically all but saying that he's lying. And the other one is taking it too seriously and biting into this narrative that Facebook is fundamentally changing its business and what it is and what it does. And I think both missed the point for the reason that, that you're referring to. Like there is no real change to the core Facebook product, the core Facebook product being the newsfeed, being what you 
you put on Facebook. There is no core change to the core Instagram product, which is not just the news feed, but also stories. And and stories, I think, is actually probably more important to Instagram these days than the feed, amazingly enough. Like, those aren't changing. And those aren't going to be encrypted. Again, they can't be encrypted. The ads aren't going anywhere. The data that is collected via those products is not going anywhere. None of this is changing. And if you think about it from that direction, why wouldn't he be telling the truth? You know, to your point, putting privacy safeguards on one-to-one communication is not just sort of good for people generally, although there are definite trade-offs, which we can get to in a moment, but it's good business sense. And frankly, it's good business sense, not just from a people like the idea of stuff being private, but it increases sort of the barrier to entry for competitors because you're getting this super lockdown service that is tied to the existing Facebook network. And that's a pretty powerful thing. I 100% agree. Now, that being said, there are some interesting threads that I might pull on if I was to really test whether privacy and encryption were the driving factors behind this. For example, why does interoperability, how does that factor into this? Like WhatsApp is already end-to-end encrypted and a point taken around Facebook's broadcast aspects. So the stuff that you're sharing on the public network and same with Instagram, things that are going on your Instagram feed or in your Instagram stories. If you're sharing that with everybody, then of course it can't be encrypted. But I'm kind of curious why interoperability is such a focus when I would assume that it wouldn't be that difficult to turn on encryption in Messenger, end-to-end encryption in Messenger, and end-to-end encryption in direct inside of Instagram, which is the messaging functionality, without necessarily making it all interoperable. Well, first off, encryption is a hard problem, especially end-to-end encryption, where especially if you want to display it on the web, you figure out how you hand off keys, all these sorts of things. It is a very challenging problem. And I actually wrote an article last year about the fact that the reality, because the challenges are so real with this sort of stuff, that a demand for sort of encryption is going to lead to sort of more centralized networks because to have a centralized someone that owns the entire chain and can have a centralized key server and can do what's called a a key handoff, where basically you have a public key that I give to you and that key will unlock the stuff that I encrypt with my private key, but it's a one-way sort of locking and unlocking. So I can lock stuff and then you have to have the key to unlock it. And so you could do this on a one-to-one basis where I actually send you the key. I don't know if you ever gotten like an encrypted email before, but it, that's how it works. You have to actually get the key in. And needless to say, a user experience sort of nightmare, right? Like for iMessage, for example, Apple will facilitate that exchange and they'll facilitate in a way that they don't have the key so they can unlock it. So they can sort of wave their hands like can't, can't. Exactly. Yeah. The law enforcement can come and get it from them, for example, or governments along those lines, but they make that sort of exchange of keys between us possible. And there's like layers of encryption <laughs> that make this all work. And so it's not by any means an easy problem. Problem. That said, it's actually, people might not be aware of this, it's one Facebook has solved. I mean, WhatsApp, as you noted, is already end-to-end encrypted. Messenger already has encrypted messages that you have to turn on. It's not on by default, but you can turn on encryption in Messenger. And Instagram, they're already working on, I don't believe it's done yet, but they are doing it for Instagram to make it encrypted. And I think it's going to all, I suspect, sort of be built on this sort of WhatsApp infrastructure. So I think there's an aspect where I don't think it's going to be as difficult to do sort of the cross thing as like the Delta. I'm not sure is as large as it potentially seems. That said, I think there's certainly fair to question like how many consumers are demanding for this sort of functionality, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> I've just been running around all day thinking, God damn it. Why can't I message you from 
messenger and hit your WhatsApp, Ben. It's like so frustrating. Well, I will tell you, as someone that lives in Asia and sort of communicates with people all over the world, and by far my primary communications medium is messaging, I don't have a messaging app in my dock on my phone. What I have is a folder of messaging apps because that way I get one notification for all of them. I can easily get to any of them. And so let's see, I have WhatsApp. Uh, I use WhatsApp to communicate with some people in Taiwan and, and lots of friends in China. We can mention why people in China prefer WhatsApp. And then also just people around the world generally use WhatsApp. I have Slack for, you know, Slack. Obviously, there's some of the informal Slack groups that I'm in on those lines. I have WeChat for people in China. I have Google Voice for sort of text messaging to my U.S. number. I have Line because Line is sort of the dominant messaging app here in Taiwan. I have messages for you know, Apple's iMessage, which is probably the primary one I use with folks in the US. I have Facebook Messenger, which honestly, I don't use that much. What is missing is a dedicated Twitter DM app. And the fact that it, it doesn't exist and that they almost killed DMs back in the day is just one of my favorite examples of how Twitter has no idea what the heck they're doing, traditionally speaking. But the point is, I feel this pain. I feel this idea of when I think about I want to contact someone, it's a multi-step process where A, I want to contact this person. And then B, I have to figure out which app to contact them with. That said, having Facebook's apps together is not going to help me solve this problem for me personally. On the other hand, there are countries where Facebook is the dominant social network. WhatsApp is sort of the dominant sort of chat app or Instagram may be the dominant medium for broadcasting and WhatsApp is a private one. So I can see a benefit sort of having it all in one, particularly in countries where Facebook does sort of, you know, again, I think there's two real types of networking. There's the broadcast networking and there is the one-to-one networking. And a lot of countries, Facebook does own both those, whether it be Instagram on one side and WhatsApp on the other, or sort of Facebook on one side and Messenger or whatever it might be. And I guess I could see some sort of ancillary benefit, but putting it together is certainly going to be hard. I'm not sure as hard as it appears, given they've done a lot of the work, but I don't know. Yeah. And I hear you on all those messaging apps. And I'm sure like a lot of people around the world, I feel the pain. That being said, there's also something to, given some aspect of this is more on the broadcast side of it, which Instagram, you have people who you may never have met following you. Facebook and WhatsApp are more similar in terms of like the relationship may end up being tighter. I feel like actually there's an argument for keeping them separate and not having the aspects overlinked, but putting all that aside and call me a cynic, which people might do. I couldn't help but think when I saw this as this was, okay, I'm worried about the Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp getting broken up from a regulatory perspective. And perhaps one way of defending against that is to start to tie together the backend infrastructure to prevent that from happening. Yep. I think that's a very fair question and concern to have. I mean, we already know they're tied together sort of from an advertising perspective and to layer on a more sort of user facing tying together makes sense. And also to the extent they want to build out sort of a platform for businesses to interact and communicate with customers, having them tied together, I think makes that more compelling. And they've certainly been working on this for a long time. As far as WhatsApp goes, I don't know how much, you know, real world progress they've made, but if there is a situation where, for example, on Instagram, you see a product and you want to buy it. And then you sort of complete that transaction through WhatsApp. I think you can see it, the cross sort of platform stuff making more sense there. There are business reasons and I think regulatory reasons, which is a very fair point that maybe make it a little more compelling than it seems from sort of consumer facing perspective. Oh, I mean, I absolutely agree around that. And I guess this is where a little bit of this frustration with Facebook 
starts to bubble up again, which is, okay, this is an attempt to say we're hearing the complaints around privacy. And so we're talking about this new vision for a privacy-focused vision for social networking. And then instead of really going into what was being complained about, it feels like, okay, the post starts talking about something else, which is messaging, which is what we've covered. And then interoperability is being talked about under the guise of like, isn't this great for users? But like you said, this wouldn't solve that much of a problem for you. It certainly wouldn't solve that much of a problem for me. Certainly not a complaint I have ever heard before. Like the example that's given of like, oh, being able to message people from WhatsApp from Messenger. I've really never heard that complaint and people are pretty good at segmenting them apart. But in terms of a regulatory perspective, it kind of makes sense. And there are some really good business reasons why it makes sense. And actually, I'd like to touch on them. But first, I guess coming back to is like, okay, guys, there are business reasons for making this interoperable. Instead of trying to feed us a narrative around this being driven by privacy, okay, let's start talking about what some of those business reasons are. And it's funny, this morning, I was talking to the leadership team of a big multinational bank on the topic of disruption. And the topic of Tencent came up and how that is now a basis for payments all across China. And it's not that long a bow to draw to see that this is actually Facebook starting to tie together all the pieces to do something similar for the rest of the world. And you mentioned businesses and the value of having businesses you know, going from Instagram to messaging or whatever. But the other aspect to this, and it's been reported on recently, is payments. And Facebook's been looking at blockchain for some time. It's being reported. I think there was a New York Times article on this within the last couple of weeks. And you can see this being a basis for okay, right now Facebook has to buy all the data from payments companies, which they probably don't like having to do. And it's being amalgamated, I think, under Project Atlas. And again, you think about Facebook trying to make it super easy for small business and take away fees. Well, if Facebook has a payment mechanism that uses blockchain that is very low on fees, is very low friction, and yeah, there's encryption in the messaging, but if the payment is taking place on a Facebook network, that's data that Facebook is then collecting on users as they're purchasing things from small businesses. And what better way of building up a detailed advertising platform than having the payments integrated with the advertising platform? It makes a ton of strategic sense, but please don't try and sell it to me under the basis of this is what users are crying out for, or worse yet, privacy, because it strikes me as insincere. Well, I would push back in three ways on that. 98% agreeing with you. So one, I would say that, yeah, there is a ton of opportunity in this space. Like I'm very much with you on that. I think your point about payments is a super interesting one. Again, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but that's a very plausible way for it to play out. And even if it doesn't play out that way, at the end of the day, Facebook is still advertising these people, right? They're advertising them on their core platforms. There's nothing preventing Facebook from putting advertisements within the chat programs. I'm skeptical of advertising within chat because I think your mode of engagement, which is you're more directly focused on what you're doing as opposed to sort of wasting time and just flipping through a feed. I think it's less favorable for advertising, but big picture, there's nothing stopping Facebook from leveraging the data they have on you and will continue to collect on you to put ads in Messenger, for example, or put ads in WhatsApp or whatever they might be. Again, I'm not saying they'll do that, but this idea that there's some sort of radical shift in the company and they're abandoning what got them to where they are, it makes no sense. 
ads. And this is the sort of the, the category of people that I said are taking Facebook too seriously in this regard. On the flip side, I think there's an aspect where at the end of the day, yes, are they maybe deflecting the conversation? Absolutely. And I'm not saying that they're not by any means. That doesn't change the fact that extending end-to-end encryption to people all over the world is a privacy-enhancing move. It's one of the most privacy-enhancing moves that you could possibly think of. And frankly, I think the sort of disingenuousness and sort of lack of thinking things through completely, or maybe that Facebook are completely, but they're not presenting it completely, I think that sort of extends in both directions. I think there's a lot of people out there that like privacy as a cudgel with which to hit Facebook. And the actual idea of real privacy is something they might not like so much. I mean, an end-to-end encryption is a perfect example. There are real trade-offs with end-to-end encryption. There is the obvious sort of law enforcement one where you can't wiretap an encrypted sort of communication. Like we've been through that with Apple and all the issues that come up around that. There's the idea of sort of misinformation. If misinformation is floating around Facebook, at least you can find the misinformation and know that it's happening. When it's going around through these WhatsApp groups, for example, that's been a major issue in India. No one knows what's going because no one even knows what's being said and Facebook can't see it. And all these people that like there's a real tension between demanding Facebook take privacy more seriously and that Facebook do a better job policing content on its platform. And I think that this is going to be a bit of a wake up call for people that are Facebook critics where they want to hit Facebook with basically every stick they can get their hands on without appreciating that at one point they're grabbing the same stick with two hands. They're going to swing back to hit Facebook and they hit themselves in the forehead. To be clear, this isn't in reference to you. I think you're absolutely spot on that Facebook is leveraging the privacy debate and the privacy push to align themselves with that, gain sort of PR goodwill by doing things that are generally good for privacy, but that also are sort of not about the issue at hand. But at the same time, that's, I think, just as much the fault of folks that were banging Facebook on the head with privacy. But you know, something that I've been very consistent about with Facebook is it's really important in this debate to be very explicit in your language. Like, for example, don't say that Facebook's selling data. Yes. You've called me on that before. I've been guilty of it. And I appreciate that too. Well, I mean, again, it's a very fine line between what they're doing and like actual like selling data. But the moment that you sort of forget about that fine line, say, oh, it's close enough. It's basically what they're doing is you're giving Facebook an out. And we saw this out demonstrated in Mark Zuckerberg's testimony for Congress, for example. And I think it's a similar thing here where people have been railing on Facebook for privacy. And now Facebook's like, fine, you want privacy? Here's privacy. And it is privacy. And it's not what people actually wanted because they weren't precise enough about what exactly the issues were. I think it's a phenomenal point. I've been grateful for you holding me to account about being precise around what my complaints are. And I guess as a result of that, I feel good. And I appreciate you not saying before it's not me. And I think in part that's because- Yeah, no, no. This is the sort of the fervor on Facebook generally, I think it was my reference there. Yeah. And, and I mean, I probably been guilty of that at times, but at the same time, I very much appreciate the importance of being precise. And I think that then gives me some standing when something like this comes along to say, okay, guys, this is great. I'm very glad that you're doing this. Like you said, I think this is privacy enhancing for a lot of people all around the world. And there are a lot of use cases for which I think this is phenomenal for all the reasons why I applauded Apple and iMessage with the encryption, like same thing. But at the same time, like you've kind of created a little bit of a straw man here, which is we've been talking about the 
these problems with the data collection and the way it's being used. And again, it came up again this week around how the phone number for two-factor authentication is being used by Facebook to suggest friends you might know according to what's in your phone book. And like, that's the kind of privacy, the fundamental core of how Facebook, and I think we've talked about the growth team previously, I think it relates to that, around how they will take private data and they will use it in order to keep growing. And that's the problem that I have. And that doesn't feel like exactly what you're talking about in the post. Yeah, no, I think that it's interesting to consider that two-factor controversy because there's kind of like three explanations for why that happened. The idea that Facebook asked for your phone number so you can do two-factor authorization to make your account secure. And then that is now sort of like part of your profile, basically. It's not publicly exposed explicitly. Like you go to your profile, it says this is your phone number. But if you can like look up people by their phone number, for example, it would be an example of how it manifests itself. So there's three possibilities. So one is this idea of using two-factor numbers was brought to senior management. They're like, yeah, that sounds great. Wouldn't it be a great? That's a great way to get more data. Obviously, that's pretty unconscionable. The second one is Facebook has no sort of, this decision was made on sort of a junior level and there's just no real appreciation or anything in the culture about respecting people's data or privacy. And that's what happened. And the third one, which I think connects to the first two, but I think it's a little bit more of a subtle point, is that I suspect that Facebook, just the way it's set up from a technological perspective, the way that people's data is sort of in the system. I'm not even sure if it was possible for them to ingest a number for a person and not use it for data, if that makes sense. Because a lot of things we're talking about definitely do stem from things that happened many years ago, right? The Cambridge Analytica example, for example, stemmed back to an API decision that was made coming on a decade ago. And when the data was actually leaked was 2013 or 14 or something along those lines. Because the whole point was it used to be publicly available to anyone. We talked about how the Obama campaign used the same sort of data. By the time the Trump campaign came around, that data wasn't as available, so they had to buy it or however they acquired it. And so the point, though, is they paid the price in 2017 for something that happened in 2013 because of a decision in 2011. Something along those lines. And I think it's easy to imagine a scenario where Facebook just, the way it was structured, it was structured around these wrong and mistaken ideas about people and their private data. And it was built on the assumptions that all data is fair game. We're going to get as much as we can. We're going to plug it all in. We will put limits to what we expose. You know, like privacy was defined as sort of a user interface problem where we're going to have all this data and we're going to sort of decide how we expose it on sort of a case by case basis. And I think this actually lends validity to that view. I wouldn't be surprised if Facebook went back this week at this conference like, damn it, we can't actually fix this. We did not build in sort of assumptions with our data about putting granular limitations on what data can be used for. We just kind of took it all in and assumed we could use it for anything. And now we got to sort of rework things. And from that perspective, it lends credence to your point that the fundamental problems are not fixed by this. They're not changed. At the same time, it's a lot easier in some respects to sort of fix the messaging problem because it's a relatively new product that was built, you know, with sort of different assumptions and has different use cases. And to the extent they will fix the privacy problem you want them to fix, I'm not sure it's even technically feasible, frankly, for them to fix it this quickly. Like this is something where if they come back in a couple of years or like, okay, we had to completely rework our, the entire way we house and manage data and present it and think about it, the privacy sort of limitations, then they will deserve a lot more credit for privacy than they probably deserve today. 
That's exactly it. If I'd read something about that under the title of privacy-focused vision for social networking, and instead of it talking about interoperability and that being the big push, instead it's like, okay, guys, we've heard this criticism and this is the latest version of it. And this was something that was core to the way we approach things previously, but we hear this and we want to change the way we operate at a fundamental level. And let me give you an example that recently came up where this happened and these are the reasons why. And we are speculating. You gave three reasons. I'm not sure which one I like best. Well, because I think if you back up far enough, they're all true, right? There was an executive decision made to handle data in this cavalier manner way back when. And over time, whoever rolled out two-factor authorization, no one actually thought through the fact that given the way that we've set up the way we handle data, this is going to happen, right? This should have been known that if we start asking people for their phone numbers, we're going to start exposing those phone numbers. Is that something we actually want to do? So there's a major cultural problem, even if you give them the grace of there potentially being a technical reason why this happened. Right. And, you know, grappling with something difficult like that and digging in on something like that. And I would be like, wow, that would lend credence to the folks who are out there saying, oh, Facebook is now really serious about privacy. Yeah, that's exactly right. If Facebook wants to be taken seriously about privacy, they need to own up to what they did wrong previously. Again, owning up, like, I'm a sympathetic to Facebook's sense that they never get a fair shake these days. I think there is something to that. We've talked in the past that there have been stories out there that are just just blatantly unfair. Like, I'm talking about, like, phones getting access to data, which phones have access to all your data. I mean, I'm sorry, that's the way it works. But I do think Facebook has gone too far the other direction, where I think there is room for them to own up to mistakes and own up to them and be like, look, we made assumptions that undergird our systems in 2010. And those assumptions should not be wrong. And we're going to fix it as soon as we can. And here's our plan. And here's what we're going to do in the meantime. And if this came out like, look, we understand there's issues about shows with Facebook. We need to like fundamentally re- rework how we think about data. We're going to do that. And in the meantime, we have a relatively newer system, which is messaging. And we have a greater opportunity to start fresh there. So we're going to start fresh and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, spot on. I'm thinking back to a couple of things. The first is that article that Zainab Tufetchi talked about the 15-year apology tour. And also the point that we raised earlier on in the podcast around projected self versus real self. And it feels like when Zuckerberg writes these memos or talks about these things, this doesn't feel like the authentic, I recognize there's truly a mistake and I am trying to own it type messaging that he aspires to in the small one-on-one living room type environment, which is exactly what I think he should be doing around this, which is like being a little bit vulnerable and acknowledging that there's a mistake and truly owning it like what you just described. And instead, this feels very much like a post from a CEO that's biased much more towards the projected self, which is like, I'm going to try to take the problem that everybody's talking about. And rather than fundamentally addressing it, I'm going to kind of window dress it and maybe disguise over here and make it look like all the frustrations that I have with this projected version of social media. It's like, everything's okay. Everything's great. We'll just do these things and look how wonderful life is or look how we're fixing these privacy problems. It just doesn't feel genuine to me. 
That's such an amazing analogy. It's truly fantastic. I think that's exactly right. And if you think about this, I mentioned that quote at the beginning where I'm going to quote it again. This is Mark Zuckerberg back in, I believe it was 2010. People have really gotten comfortable not only sharing more information in different kinds, but more openly with more people. That social norm is just something that has evolved over time. And I think so many of Facebook's problems and the 15-year apology tour and everything you're talking about goes back to the fact that he was wrong. And he built this company Facebook built this company, and by build this company, I don't just mean the culture. I don't just mean the people. I mean probably the fundamental technical underpinnings of how Facebook works was built around the assumption that all data was sort of open and available. And that's something that's really, really hard to undo. And if you're not honest about that fact, again, we're kind of projecting it here, but if you're not honest about that fact, you're going to have to apologize again and again because inevitably you're going to face these controversies again and again until you fundamentally rework the entire thing. And there's a lot of loose threads that I think can sort of be tied up here and they're projecting something that's not true because they feel they need to and they're in a tough spot because <laughs> because it's not true. Yeah. And I mean, I know I've been critical of them, but no one would love it more than me than if I felt this was genuine or authentic. Like, okay, we genuinely recognize this is what people are talking about. This is the issue. This is the way that we've approached this is wrong. You mentioned it just a few minutes back. You started talking about it in a way that just like, wow, I wish someone there would say that because that feels genuine. And then the encryption thing is like, because of our commitment to this, this is another thing that we're doing. Like that feels genuine. And I think that's what I'm craving. Like, I think that's what I've been craving from social networking. And part of my natural aversion to it is it hasn't felt authentic all along. And I think that is my biggest frustration with the company and the way that it goes about addressing these problems. Like they're not really a authentically addressing the problems. It's just like, okay, we're going to try and just deflect this for another however long until we get to the next thing that we do. Yeah. This is why I think there's a little bit more, I don't know if humility is the right word, but sort of a there, but the grace go I sort of attitude that's appropriate with regards to Facebook. Because when Mark Zuckerberg said that, yes, there was some pushback, but there was no real world pushback. The reality is he was right about the newsfeed. Yes, people were upset about it, but actually it turned out people loved it. And Mark Zuckerberg got up on stage and said, we're going to have the social graph where you can get all this data. Like it said very clearly when you signed up, you're sharing not just your data, but all your friends data. Like they weren't sneaking around in the night making all this available, right? Like it was quite clear what was going on and no one seemed to care. And in that context that they would build a sort of company around these assumptions in a way that they didn't actually feel the pain of them. No, again, you can step back and objectively say they were bad. They shouldn't have done that. But I think you could also say, well, I can understand where they were coming from and I can appreciate the fact they basically had no feedback. There's no pain function. Like imagine if you had a pain function that didn't kick in for five years, right? And you had your hand on the burner for the proverbial five years. Well, guess what? It's going to hurt a whole lot in five years, but you can kind of understand why you have a, a maimed hand for life. I mean, that I should probably stop the analogy now before I go too far. Again, there by the grace of God go I. I couldn't imagine being in a business where, I mean, Facebook, Believe me, they're all doing very well for themselves, but that's pretty tough to have a feedback loop that is that long. And there's an aspect where maybe they don't have room anymore to get mercy from people, but I think it's a little bit of a tougher situation than people sort of give them credit for. Yeah. I I mean, I hear you and I hate to go against anything where you say there, but the grace of God go I. 
that always stops me in my boots because I 100% agree. At the same time, it felt like this was a where principled leadership where, okay, I understand that this is expedient from a business and a financial and a product and all these other aspects and I'm building a platform. But the principle of people entrusting this to me And again, I don't want to dredge up old ground around like my own personal views of this and my own personal experience of it, which does inform this. But there is a principle of people entrusting you this data and you being reckless with it. And yeah, I understand there wasn't broad pushback. And I agree that is definitely one mechanism. That is a correction mechanism. There is also the principle being a North Star. And there is a real responsibility when you have that much precious data around that many people around the world. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think your personal experience is very real here. And I think it's something that a lot of people can really appreciate and if not identify with. At the end of the day, they did wrong by users. They did. The way that data was shared was not the right thing to do. Mark Zuckerberg's view of the general sentiment around privacy and the way people feel about that was wrong. The reality is that people didn't understand what was happening. They didn't appreciate what was happening. There was also not the context of (laughs) President Trump being elected, which perhaps that's another conversation entirely. Opened a few eyes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, again, like I said, Obama did the exact same thing and no one seemed to care. But (laughs) but I think the other thing that's worth pointing out about this is, you know, Facebook building up this messaging ecosystem and to your point, perhaps integrating payments, but also the fact that messaging may not be a great way to monetize, but it's still very beneficial for a broadcast social networking company to own. I mean, one, if attention isn't going on your core product, better one attention going on a product you own. And two, go on a product that is not a competing advertising product, right? At the end of the day, there's a limited set of digital advertising. And if that attention isn't going to Snapchat and they're trying to stuff ads in there, well, then the only place to reach people is on Facebook proper. Well, that makes those ads that much more valuable. So, and not only that, but to the extent that building out encryption is difficult and this intra-Facebook interoperability is difficult, the more of a moat that is against sort of entrance. And now if you actually want to come into this market, I mean, Snapchat was not end-to-end encrypted when they came out. Now that's going to be sort of a baseline. You have to have that sort of level and to be sort of the WeChat of the world to the extent they can pull that off. <laughs> There's a lot of strategy credits here. To go back to a term that I coined back in 2013 around when Edward Snowden released those documents about stuff that was being shared with the NSA and Apple released like a statement saying, we definitely didn't do that. We don't actually keep data. And I'm like, well, one, that's true. And Apple's getting a lot of credit for this. But at the end of the day, given the fact they're not an advertising company, it was a costless sort of gain, right? A strategy tax is a more well-known term where you hurt one business to favor another business. In this case, Apple was benefiting their business because their business model already sort of aligned, right? And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people are like, well, that's good on Apple because Apple built the right kind of company that allowed them to be able to say that. And it's unfair for you to call it a strategy credit. Well, funnily enough, this included a strategy credit. The whole thing about we're not building data centers or not using data centers in totalitarian countries. Well, guess who uses data centers totalitarian countries? Apple does. Why doesn't Facebook? Because they're banned in China. Like, oh, they're banned in China. That's not fair. You can't compare them to Apple. Well, it's the exact same sort of thing that Apple was doing five years ago. It's a clear sort of strategy credit. Being able to build up and then encryption is sort of a strategy credit. They get credit for supporting user privacy. And oh, by the way, they're building their moat even larger. To the extent they rework the fundamental underpinnings of Facebook, if they do, which they should do, to sort of make 
privacy more of a priority and something that's actually something that's real on their platform, guess what? That's going to be another moat because it's going to make it way harder to build a data-driven business if you have to build in all these controls that Facebook might potentially do, but is able to do because they already have the product. They already have the network. They already have all the content. They already have all the money. And so, you know, it's not the worst place from a sort of strategic perspective to be. Totally. Uh, the point earlier around if someone's going to cannibalize you, it might as well be you, like really well made. And in another sense, this almost feels like the discussion around GDPR, which is, okay, they don't get to read the contents of your messages, damn, but like that's going to hurt them less than it's going to hurt someone else trying to build something like this from scratch and needing that data in order to build out an advertising platform. That's right. Facebook has so many other places to get data. They can give up one or two streams, right? And if they then get financial services and then they then get payments and like this ends up supporting them potentially even getting more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a real tension that I think that privacy advocates overlook. Like the best sort of privacy you're going to get on a sort of global scale is by having it end to end controlled by one company. Because when you start opening it up, that's where stuff starts sort of leaking out. And yes, there are peer to peer ways you can do it. Like, for example, I could send you an encrypted email, but the user experience challenges of that are so extreme, it's not going to be adopted widely. So we have a real sort of trade off between openness and true interoperability, which is going to come at the expense of super hardcore privacy. If you want everything encrypted, if you want everything locked down, if you want no data leaking out, you are asking for strong walled gardens. What this boils down to is this is smart strategy from Facebook and it's dressed up as addressing privacy concerns without- Which drives you up the wall. (laughs) Yeah, because they're not really addressing privacy concerns. And so we have another few more years of looking forward to more of the same. Yes, great encrypted messaging. Great and genuinely great. Not sarcastic rate, but I don't see anything's really changed. In fact, it feels like based on this conversation, we're just going to get more of what we've got and it's going to be harder for someone to come along and challenge them. Well, there's going to be more of a debate around the cost of end-to-end encryption. Again, not just the sort of law enforcement angle, but also the misinformation angle, which again, has been a big thing in India. I think it's going to maybe start to extend more broadly. But the other conversation that I really hope we have is this trade-off between sort of an absolutist approach to privacy and an open ecosystem that's open to competition. Like I think there is a real tension there and I think it's not a debate that has had enough is that there's real trade-offs. There's absolutely trade-offs here. And if you ask Facebook about trade-offs, I think they'd be happy to talk about the end-to-end encryption trade-offs because that's a trade-off that's sort of secular. Like that's a secular discussion to have. The trade-off between, oh, we're going to have this all locked down and end-to-end. And oh, by the way, that happens to be great for us competitive aspect. I don't think that's a discussion that they want to have. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, alas, we had to return to Facebook again. I think this is good. I'm inspired to go right. This did come out after I wrote. So my apologies. There's any sort of inconsistencies. Thank you for taking the time. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if we covered it. What obstacles did we overcome today to record this podcast? Oh, it's been raining a lot in San Francisco. It's raining here too. You know what? We powered through the rain. We powered through the rain to record this podcast. I actually (laughs) had to leave at one time because it's very windy to close a window because it was getting noisy. So good on us. Uh, Good job, James. Okay. You too, Ben. (laughs) I think we're going to have to put this one to bed. (laughs) Indeed. I'll speak to you next week, mate. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.